Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 366 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16. Moonwalk 3, Lunar Olympics, and Liftoff from the Moon. Last time we left our moonwalkers on their third EVA as they were on their way to Station 13 and Shadow Rock. (laughs) Okay, Station 13, right down the same way we came. Oh my goodness. We can't see all the ride from here. Charlie felt like they were going to launch themselves into orbit as they were going so fast. Not that he was afraid or anything. But they both got a scare a few minutes later when the right wheels of the rover ran into a crater, tilting them to the right. As John tried to correct, the rover lost traction and they spun around 180 degrees. That got their attention. However, strangely enough, they never felt like the rover was going to turn over. Their assignment at Station 13 was to find some permanently shadowed soil that had never seen the sun. John stopped the rover by the 10-foot boulder they saw on the way up. The boulder was given the name Shadow Rock. 
While John stayed at the rover measuring the lunar magnetic field with a portable magnetometer, Charlie headed off to collect the sample. Okay, I'm going to get on the sun side, sunless side, uh, Tony, so I don't know what... Uh, I know what I'm whacking on here. You know, Tony, that might be a permanently shattered soil right in there. I think it is, as a matter of fact. It'll, it'll pass. Good, so let's get one of those. You wish we had this? Okay, I'll do it. Yes, sir, baby. That is, that is a perfect shattered soil sample. Outstanding. Charlie had found a hole at least a meter deep way back underneath the rock in the shadow. It is really perfect. John, you couldn't have picked a better rock. No, it's really perfect. Just great. I have to get my visor up to see something. And I can't believe I'm going to Charlie got down on his hands and knees to try to crawl into the hole. Well, I don't know how long that rock's been there, but that dirt's been shattered ever since it's been there. Charlie reached in with the shovel, getting as far back as he could go, and collected one of the most unique samples that they would bring back from the moon. Charlie felt like the college student who had just passed his final exam. Okay, that's what we want, Charlie. That's way, I got it. I got it from about a meter up under there, Tony. Good show. Oh, that there is one of those uh, gopher holes. Yeah. You do that in West Texas and you get a rattlesnake. Here you get permanently shattered soil. Then Charlie started banging away on the rock with his hammer. And as he looked at it more closely, he saw some very strange holes, larger than the bullet-sized ones in the previous boulder, about an inch wide that disappeared back into the rock. And Tony, this uh, rock here looks like the same, as, it's the same character as the ones up on the rim. Okay. That, that great, huge black one that we uh, sample. Except we don't have any, that one up there didn't have any of these holes in it. I can't really say what these holes are here. They look like drill holes is what they look like. Yeah, that's right. They look like, uh, you know what they look like? They look like those, uh, they look like those holes you get in rocks where the, where the, uh, they look like the holes that you get in rocks where you have a, uh, a venting of gas that comes up through there, like a long, uh, you know what I mean, Tony? Sure do. Sure do. Vesicle pipes. Uh, yeah, vesicle pipes. That's it. Vesicle pipes. There you go. Now it was time to drive back to the lunar module and finish up, so they packed all the rocks and headed back. Charlie clicked pictures all the way back and continued describing their location to Houston. Okay, uh, Tony, between uh, Gator and Palmetto, John had mastered the rover after over 20 kilometers of driving. As his confidence grew, he was fearless and even bordered on the reckless at times.
In training, Charlie had nicknamed him Barney Oldfield after the old-time race car driver. And now, on the moon, he was racing for home in the lead until... Houston couldn't see what was going on, so they were probably nervous every time John and Charlie got in the rover. Charlie explained what happened. We almost hit a great big rock, but oh, Percy here avoided it. It was probably better that Houston couldn't see. Just hearing Charlie describe the near misses was worrying them enough. They were especially determined that the astronauts have no accidents during the few remaining hours before liftoff. John decided to lighten the mood. Oh, I just finished my two pounds of potassium. And you finished your two pounds already? Yeah, I don't know whether I'm driving or sloshing. <laughs> okay, we copy that. Don't let them go unstable with a fuel slosh, folks. That's right. I always... My fuel slush problem is getting to be so fierce. And the command module just did their plane change burns. Good burn. Ken was readying the command module for its rendezvous, which was to occur in eight hours. They drove the rover over the top of the ridge, and there she was waiting for them. The lunar module, their ride home. She looked great. Charlie broke into song. They collected a few more samples and began to unload the rover. Charlie decided to take this time to place his family picture on the moon. He walked about 30 feet from the limb and gently laid his autographed picture of the Duke family on the gray dust. As Charlie made a photograph of it lying there, he wondered, who will find this picture in the years to come? Then, he put one of the special Air Force medallions on the lunar surface and said, Tony, a special, a special salute to me, from me to the United States Air Force on their silver anniversary this year. From one of the boys in blue is pretty far out right now. You betcha, sir. That's outstanding. Charlie was so proud that tears of patriotism welled up in his eyes and his voice almost cracked with emotion. On previous moon missions, the crews had given a little farewell show. Al Shepard hit a golf ball. Dave Scott proved the theory of gravity by dropping a feather and a hammer. John and Charlie had planned on doing the Moon Olympics to commemorate the 1972 Summer Games that were to be in Munich. John was going to do the long jump and Charlie was to do the high jump. But since they were running behind schedule, they decided there wasn't enough time. We were going to do a, we were going to do a bunch of exercises that we had made up as a... Uh, Lunar Olympics, tell you what a guy could do on the moon with a backpack on. But 
Yeah, for a 380-pound guy, that's pretty good. They, they threw that out. Yeah, jump flat-footed straight in the air. 300, about four feet. After John's little jump, Charlie decided to join in and make a big push off the moon, getting about four feet high as well. Wow, Charlie exclaimed. But as he straightened up, the weight of his backpack pulled him over backwards. Now he was coming down on his back. He tried to correct himself but couldn't, and as his heart filled with fear, he fell the four feet, hitting hard right on his backpack. Panic! The thought that he would die raced through his mind. It was the only time in their whole lunar stay that Charlie had a real moment of panic and thought he had killed himself. The suit and the backpack weren't designed to support a four-foot fall. Had the backpack broken or the suit split open, he would have lost all his air. A rapid decompression, or as some call it, a high-altitude hiss-out, and Charlie would have been dead instantly. Fortunately, everything held together. Charlie was really embarrassed at what he had done. Flat on his back, he couldn't get up, like an upside-down turtle. So he asked John for a hand. His heart was still pounding from fear, and he was breathless. Then he got very quiet and quickly started checking out his suit. The pressure gauge on his wrist read normal, and he could hear the pumps running in the backpack. He could feel the oxygen flow in the suit. Everything was normal. Thus, the panic began to subside, and the astronauts got back to work. But Charlie was pretty subdued the rest of the EVA. Next, John drove the rover out about 100 yards behind the lunar module to allow Houston to watch liftoff on TV. While John was there, he worked to repair the cosmic ray experiment, whose panels were hung up inside its frame. He used a pair of pliers from his personal preference kit to do it. The experiment's frame was so long that it wouldn't fit in Orion. John's pliers helped break it loose from the frame so he could fold it, saving an important experiment. There were about 35 things that would have been anomalies while they were on the moon, but John and Charlie were able to fix all of them in real time without bothering mission control. Charlie went out to help John get everything dusted off on the rover, and as he was jogging back, he decided to stop and urinate. He could never manage to go while he was running. John could always tell when Charlie was doing this, and this time he decided to take Charlie's picture. I just got a picture of one of the great moments in history, Houston. How's that? Charlie looking down into a crater that's 
Okay, Mark, Real John. Real fast. That's 25 foot deep. Fair? Go ahead, okay. That was John's excuse for taking the picture, but he knew what he was really taking. <laughs> Houston was now trying to hurry the astronauts along. They were growing anxious to get John and Charlie back in and pressurized so they could start their activities for liftoff. All the equipment and rocks were now stacked at the front of the ladder and they performed their final dust-off and began carrying gear up the ladder into the lunar module. Charlie grabbed one of the rock boxes and climbed in while John began to bring up the other bags of gear. Charlie was in the limb behind the hatch trying to make as much room as possible for Young to squeeze through the opening. As they closed the hatch and repressurized, Capcom informed the crew they had completed a 5-hour, 40-minute EVA, and the back room sent out a great big outstanding. Charlie replied, Thank you very much, Tony. They kept us going and thinking, so it was a two-way street. It turned out their total EVA time for the three days spent on the moon was 20 hours, 14 minutes, and 55 seconds a new lunar record. The limb was really crowded now with all the rocks and gear. John and Charlie were squeezed in like sardines. Because of that, and because of the need to lighten the load for liftoff, they planned to leave behind as much gear as possible. Among the things they jettisoned were their backpacks, trash bags, lunar boots, and cameras. In general, things they wouldn't need anymore. They did preserve about 20 minutes of oxygen in case they had to do another EVA over to Ken Mattingly's Casper in case they couldn't dock or remove the docking probe. Once they repressurized, they decided to take off their helmets and gloves so they could work more efficiently but their helmets were stuck shut, and they couldn't get them loose. Finally, Charlie hit John's with the heel of his hand, and John did the same to Charlie's, and their helmets popped loose. Okay, uh, we had one heck of a time getting our helmets off, and it turns out that this orange juice is the best cement we've ever seen. Speak down in between the... Uh, the seals and the, uh, the helmet and the uh, ring, and we couldn't get the thing unlocked uh, without a great effort. We managed. We're both out now. Uh, we may have a new market for orange juice. Blue. Who would have imagined orange juice could cause so many problems? Sometimes it is the little things that can cause the biggest headaches. Fortunately, this was the last of the crew's orange juice-related nuisances. Now, free from their helmets and gloves, the first thing they did was weigh the rocks and soil samples. Because Mission Control needed an exact weight at liftoff for the computer to fine-tune their ascent trajectory and burn time, after weighing everything, Houston said they had collected a total of 245 pounds during their three-day stay. But 
when more accurate measurements were taken later on Earth, it turned out it was actually 213 pounds. Houston had a little concern about their weight, and for a while they thought they might have to jettison some of the rocks, but eventually Houston decided to go with all they had collected. The next preparation for liftoff was to stow all the items they had brought back in the limb. This was to prevent objects floating around and banging into things once they got into orbit. Therefore, they tied everything down and got it into its proper stowage position. By now, the floor of the crew cabin was covered with lunar dust. On the moon, this presented no problem. But they began to worry about lunar orbit. In zero gravity, the dust would float everywhere and could pose a problem for the environmental control system. So they tried to clean up the dust as well as they could. All this organization, depressurization, jettisoning, and repressurization took over an hour. Now it was time to power up the lunar module, another critical moment. Would everything work? All the systems except communication and environmental had been dormant for three days. The computer had to be powered up, checked out, and loaded. The navigation and guidance and control equipment had to be checked out. The ascent batteries and communication systems and everything that would be needed for liftoff and rendezvous were powered up and checked out. Miraculously, they all worked out. Then there was a lot of changes to be made in the checklist. For this critical portion of the mission, they could not miss a step. One error could be fatal, like forgetting to set flaps on takeoff. So John and Charlie paid a lot of attention to every detail. As they continued their preparations, they snatched a quick bite to eat. They had about three hours to get all of this completed, and things were proceeding well as they moved toward liftoff. The time of ignition was scheduled for 175 hours, 46 minutes, 35 seconds. The duration of the ascent burn was only 7 minutes, 16 seconds, which would place the limb at 60,000 feet in altitude at shutdown. The velocity should be 5,525 feet per second at shutdown. Orbit insertion for Orion was planned for an apolune of 41.1 nautical miles with a paralune of 8.9 nautical miles. Orion, you're go for liftoff. Roger. At eight minutes before ignition, John and Charlie were given a go from Capcom. They had checked out all their systems, donned their helmets and gloves, and were watching the computer countdown. Charlie was sad to leave. He had enjoyed it so much and wished he could stay longer and do more exploration. To him, it was like saying the last farewells to an old friend because he knew his chance of ever returning was very slim.
As the minutes ticked by, they got very quiet in the lunar module. From Charlie's experience as Capcom, he knew Mission Control was the same. There was little chatter now between John and Charlie. They would occasionally cast a nervous glance over at one another, but their main focus was on the computer as it counted down and on the systems as they checked and rechecked all the switches. The apprehension wasn't because of fear that they would be trapped on the moon, but anxiety that they might have made a mistake on the checklist changes. During the final few minutes, Charlie reviewed a few of the emergency procedures, casting out of his mind any thought that the engine might not light. About this time, he decided to urinate. But, unbeknownst to Charlie, his urine collection device condom had slipped off. So, when he began to urinate, all of a sudden, he felt a warm liquid down his left leg. Unfortunately, he really had to go and wasn't able to stop. Therefore, he ended up having a squishy left boot at ascent. At T minus two minutes, they turned on the master arm switch. That left them with only one more button to press, the abort stage button, which would automatically signal the computer that they were in the proper configuration for liftoff. This would occur at five seconds before liftoff. Mark, one minute, 30 seconds till ignition. Coming up now on minus one minute, Mark, minus one minute. Minus 30 seconds. 20 seconds. 10 seconds. Houston confirms a good ignition start on Orion. Right at ignition, a whole series of events occurred. Charlie was surprised at the speed of them all and at the noise and movement of the vehicles as they left the descent stage. The lunar module was held together by three large bolts, and at liftoff, the bolts explode, separating the ascent stage from the descent stage. At the same time, a guillotine-like device cuts the electrical, oxygen, and water lines. When the bolts exploded, instead of being propelled upwards, they actually dropped. Oh no, it didn't light, and we're dropping, flashed through Charlie's mind. Then bang, the engine ignited, and instantly there was 3,500 pounds of thrust. A kick hit the bottom of their feet, and off they went, straight up for about 800 feet. Orion weighed only 1,600 pounds in lunar gravity, and with the engine producing 3,500 pounds of thrust, it was a nice acceleration. 
they were standing up and could feel the force as their feet were pushed against the floor. Pitch over uh, 53 degrees on time. The lunar module pitched over and John and Charlie got a quick glimpse of the lunar module descent stage and the rover and they could see all the tracks they had made across the lunar surface. The instruments showed they were accelerating correctly downrange, but it felt like they were pitching over in a big arc and going back down to crash onto the lunar surface. The horizon disappeared out of the front window and all they could see now was the moon. Charlie squatted down and looked out the top of the window to catch a sight of the horizon and make sure they were okay. As the 16 small rocket thrusters of the reaction control system fired away to maintain the correct attitude, the vehicle began to wallow from side to side. What a ride, Charlie shouted. It was one of the most exciting flying machines he had ever been in. They proceeded through each minute, hearing a go by mission control. Charlie didn't know what they could have done if they had given them a no-go. The only thing they could have done at that point was crash back into the moon. But of course, that didn't happen. By six minutes after liftoff, they were at an altitude of 55,000 feet and traveling about 3,100 miles per hour. Shutdown was to occur at seven minutes plus 15 seconds. Right before shutdown, John and Charlie terminated some interconnects between fuel lines to save the reaction control system for achieving rendezvous and docking later with Ken. Right on schedule, the engine shut down and Charlie called the ascent terminated. Orion was inserted into orbit. Just a minute later, a tweak burn nulled their residual velocities. They now pitched the spacecraft toward Ken, who was above and in front of them. Back in Casper, Ken had not been sitting idly by awaiting John and Charlie's return. While they were on the moon, it had been Ken's job to take pictures of the surface and operate different instruments in the command and service module designed to complete a photographic and geochemical mapping of a wide belt around the lunar equator. Actually, he had gotten most of this required orbital work done during the six hours John and Charlie had been delayed on their clearance to land. Task he had worked for many, many hours to perfect in the command module simulator at the Cape. So he had plenty of time during his 53 orbits without his fellow crew members to steadily eyeball everything he could see on the lunar surface using the acuity of his own eyesight to focus on and assess the nature of the moon's features in ways that photographs and instruments could not. That was something that the geologist had trained him to do, and Ken proved very adept at it. Overall, Ken set a new record for duration of stay in lunar orbit, 
125 hours, 46 minutes, 50 seconds. Orion's rendezvous radar locked on Ken almost immediately after John got a visual of the command module. Casper had a very strong tracking light flashing on board, which John and Charlie could easily see silhouetted against the blackness of space. At this point, they were 145 miles apart and closing at a rate of 300 miles per hour. Even though they had a lot of work to do and it was easy to miss a rendezvous in space, to have Ken in sight was a very comforting feeling. Charlie was reminded of the old Air Force saying, if the gas holds out, you're going to make it when you can see your target. As soon as John and Charlie turned on their tracking light, Ken reported, Tally-ho! He could see Orion now and began to track it visually with his onboard equipment, much like a gun sight. Ken could see Orion's light from 70 nautical miles on the telescope. John and Charlie continued tracking, completing a terminal phase initiation burn and two small mid-course correction burns on the backside of the moon. When they regained acquisition of signal with Earth, they were only three miles from the command module. Guess we don't need to tell you, but this is a sweet machine. Charlie told Capcom Jim Irwin, who had flown aboard Apollo 15. The lunar module had been flying beautifully, like a fast maneuverable fighter aircraft. John and Charlie felt like hotshot fighter pilots again. Apollo Control, we show a range uh, now of two and a half nautical miles, a range rate of 32 feet per second. John and Charlie began to reduce their rate of closure, 27, 10, now they were a quarter mile apart. They continued to slow down, and by the time they arrived, 70 yards from Ken, they had reached a relative velocity of one foot per second. As they began to close in, they could see Ken's reaction control jets firing. They reached station keeping distance and killed the remaining velocity. Charlie was surprised when Houston said, John, looking at the pictures of liftoff, it appears something might have come loose. The skin on the back of the vehicle or that region. We want Ken to take some pictures of the limb, so we'll be asking you to do a yaw. 360. Mission Control had seen some panels fly loose at lunar liftoff and they were concerned about possible damage to the lunar module. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 366 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Moonwalk 3, Lunar Olympics, and Liftoff from the Moon. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on June 24th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 191 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, some afterthoughts on this episode. Charlie really does get into a lot of things, doesn't he? He's such a great character. He is one of my favorite astronauts. But it seems like he does something every EVA. (laughs) Unfortunately, this time he nearly killed himself trying to jump too high and landing on his backpack. If that backpack or suit would have failed, Charlie would be dead on the moon. Now, a dead astronaut on the moon might have had a negative effect on the next mission, Apollo 17. There might not have been one. Not very smart of Charlie, but he just wants to have fun. (laughs) And then there is John seeing it happen and giving Charlie the disgusted yell, Charlie! Do you think John was getting a little frustrated with Charlie? Do you think that is why he wanted to take an embarrassing picture of Charlie's? while he was urinating? (laughs) Maybe to let off a little steam. But I have a feeling it was just pranks that men play on each other. I'm sorry, ladies. We're just like that sometimes. Of course, John was not immune to doing some risky things himself. He did the jump first. Before that, He set a lunar speed record and did a 180 with the rover. Not exactly safe or responsible. By the way, Charlie and John disagreed in their books about the velocity on the lunar speed record. And John also admitted the 180-degree spin and the big rock he almost hit from his book. Instead, writing that the surface was smooth and they had no trouble driving. (laughs) Charlie, to his great credit, puts everything in his book. (laughs) All the mistakes and near disasters. He's even admitted that he urinated on himself. (laughs) So, I don't know too many people that are going to be that forthcoming with you. And that's another reason I like Charlie. Well, that high potassium orange drink will not stop causing problems. Now, when mixed with moon dust, it creates a glue so powerful that you can't get your helmets off. It seems like it is, really, the small stuff that you don't expect to be a problem that gets you sometimes. If I could get my helmet, if it was me, and I could not get my helmet off, I would tend to feel a bit claustrophobic. And I might even panic a little. 
but that's just me. I briefly mentioned the moon dust floating around in zero-g. If I remember correctly, moon dust has silicon dioxide glass in it, which could negatively affect your lungs. So that is a real problem that we will have to deal with once we graduate to actual moon bases and people are up there full time. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, of course we're still cleaning stuff up and still finding snakes, but they're still pretty nice. I completed the well house that I mentioned last week. I just need to do a little bit of weather weather proofing. And I need to put heat tape on the pipes inside so they don't freeze in the winter. It looks so much better now than two trash cans that were covering the well. The new house really does look nice. You may recall from last time the giant tin storage building that looked like a trash can <laughs> we were going to try to move out of the front yard and I had a question whether that was going to succeed or not I was the odds were not so great well after a few tries we were successful moving it using the tractor and the utility trailer unfortunately we lost the wooden floor that was mostly rotted away anyway so we are making a new floor for it with found material. We found a bunch of old bricks and some very nice rocks. We're going to put those down as the floor and cover it with pavers cement. It's supposed to stop the bricks and rocks from moving. My more solid floor. I'll let you know how it comes out. I'm sure it will be better than a dirt floor. We got our first electrical permit today, in fact, but the builder still hasn't done any work. In fact, we still have final plans we're supposed to approve. The little bit of corrections we made to the review drawings still haven't been made to the final drawings, and that was two months ago. So we are less than happy about that situation. Neither of my daughter's houses have been started either, so we are all in the same situation. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had six contributions, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Starship level. Peter W. from Germany donated at the Orion level and earned an alien emoji. Christopher B. from Pennsylvania donated at the Apollo level. Richard M. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Ian L. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Paul F. from the Old North State donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Our total Patreon donors are at 248. That is a loss of eight donors during the month of May. If your credit card has expired on Patreon, we would greatly appreciate it if you would check on that. 
because that's usually how we use, lose donors on Patreon. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 349, and our goal is to reach 500 by the end of 2021. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruptions, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button to make a one-time contribution or the Patreon link to make monthly contributions. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Let me add just a little to our personal project. Construction has not started, sadly, but the property is really shaping up and we are seeing some fruits of our labor. An enormous amount of trash has been hauled off. We still have more, but a a huge part of that is gone and that feels so much better. And the whale house, it looks fabulous. It is red with white trim, just like a barn. A little mini, mini barn for the whale. (laughs) It's cute. I think the grandchildren really enjoyed helping Mike with that project too. It was great seeing them out there. Now for the SRH drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the rare SRH Archive Magnet, or a genuine NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected David Butler. David Butler, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 349 who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Flight Journal, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 367 posted by June 24th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.